Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Mulatala. In today's episode, I am so delighted to be introducing you to a good friend of mine, Bridget Dempsey. Bridget and I go way back, though we didn't know each other well when we were living and working in London. We got to know each other better when we both found ourselves in Paris. She stayed, I moved again, but we stay in touch. In our conversation, she tells me about her upbringing, her love of travel, and how her studies brought her to London, working in retail, and how she veered away from the path she'd imagined for herself. We explore her early career, how she started in skincare, communications, and then moved across to Lancôme. And how in a mother of all pivots, she ended up in the French capital, launching a bespoke ready-to-wear business named after her grandmother. Fast forward a little bit and we talk about the new business, which she launched a couple of years ago, Yan Wellness, a brand that promotes healthy, beautiful skin with the goal to have us glow from the inside out. Bridget tells me about the ins and outs of developing the brand, the products, the key ingredients, and she talks about the support that she gets from her family, company, the Dancy Group. We also talk about synchronicities, how Bridget is so strongly connected to her roots. She tells me about how inspired she is by the fabulous women in her life and by the sea. Her brand is really at the crossroads between skincare and biotechnology. So we explore the future of the beauty industry and talk about how to deal with the noise that comes from social media these days before closing with my favorite quick fire round questions. I'm so happy to be bringing you this interview. I hope that you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Bridget Dempsey. Enjoy. Bridget, welcome to Out of the Clouds. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Anne, for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. We've been talking about this for a while. Yes. And I know that this is something new for you. Yeah, you're my very first podcast interview. I feel so excited. <laughs> this is a huge honor because <laughs> I've told you, but I'm so happy that, that my first podcast is with you. And I think your podcast is brilliant. So I'm honored Thank you as so well. much. Oh, I'm so happy. I love your journey and I'm excited to be asking you a lot of questions because I, I feel like I will get to know you better uh, as a friend and, of course, also as, as an entrepreneur. As you are familiar with the podcast, you know that I like to ask this question to start asking my guests to introduce who they are rather than just what they do. Okay. So that we have background and context about your personal story before we speak about the rest of your entrepreneurial and, and life journey, so to speak. If that's all right, will you tell us who you are? Sure, with pleasure. I think I'll start with my age. I'm 45. I am born and raised in, with a Canadian father and a French mother who, who, despite the fact that we lived in Canada, really raised us in, in a French way. And I think that's worth pointing out because it, it did have a lot to do with my upbringing. And not just in a French way, but in her French way, which was my mom's from a small village 
in Normandy. So looking back, I think she was raising us in similar ways that she was raised. And then after I went to university in Canada, but I did a lot of traveling in high school. And I always, as soon as there was an opportunity to do an exchange, I always jumped on it. I, I was pretty familiar with Europe before moving there after university. I chose to do a master's program in England. And then thanks to the French passport, I was able to start my career off in London, which was brilliant. And so I lived in London for my 20s, which is where I got to meet you. And after, I think just around when I was turning 30, I was definitely looking for a change. And a friend of mine said, would you ever think of moving to Paris? And even though I felt like it should be easy since I'm half French, I had never spent any time in Paris. So I didn't have one friend other than the one I came over with before moving here. And then I've been here ever since. Oh, I didn't mention anything personal though. <laughs> <I'm> not, <laughs> I well, why don't we here. add the personal? <laughs> yeah, I moved here and then not right away. Actually, this is another, I, I ended up meeting the man of my dreams quite late. So I also had kids, two, two daughters, pretty late comparatively. And so now I'm mom of a four and a half year old, almost five, and a two and a half year old. Uh, Dahlia is the two and a half year old and Josephine is the almost five. Mm. I'm really uh, curious to ask you, you mentioned that whenever you had an opportunity to do an exchange, you just jumped on it. Why do you think that was? I think the excitement, but like whatever the exchange, whether or not it was abroad or I remember at the girls' school I went to, there was also a a small boarding part to the school. So only like 100 boarders. And every year they would do a border exchange where you would be a boarder for a week and the boarder would come live with you. And even that, I'm like, I got to do that. (laughs) Anything that would get me out of the house. (laughs) That's funny. Who did you um, grow up with? Brothers and sisters? Two older brothers. And we all now work together. So we're very close. Okay, I was wondering if you were trying to escape them. <laughs> Definitely, I loved when I, I'd be at home without my older brothers, <laughs> just in terms of sharing the remote control. But no, we grew up always very close. I so hear you about sharing the remote control. <laughs> yeah, I only had one brother, but it was always a fight. Yeah. And tell me, what did you end up studying? What did you want to be when you were a kid? I don't really remember in high school what I was interested. I definitely wanted a job where I could travel. And my mom always said that I used to tell her that. And then I think at university, I chose poli sci. I I always liked topics that would teach me about the world and history as well. And so I think secretly, even though I, I wasn't saying it out loud, I was probably thinking the life of a diplomat would be amazing. An ambassador. It's funny, a friend of mine told me just a couple of days ago about how he engaged in several layers of training to get to a diplomat and then decided to have another career. Fascinating. Yeah, Yeah, because I looked at your LinkedIn profile, something that you don't do every day about your friends. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I had no idea what you'd studied. And I was Mm. fascinated about that choice of, yeah, political science. I worked at um, the Canadian Embassy in Paris when I was in first year university or second. So that that gave me an eye into it. But I was never like very upset that I didn't 
continue that path. I wrote the foreign <laughs> services exam after doing my master's, but I, I remember writing the exam thinking like, no big loss if, if this doesn't pan out. So now I'm really curious. Yeah. That happened. And then what happened next? I kept, I, I was very happy in the jobs I was doing in London. I think it, I'm really grateful that my first job experience, or I guess it's second technically, because I had a job in between my undergrad and my postgrad at a great Canadian travel company. And then, but, but my first job, like my first, I'm done my studies, what's my job, was at John Lewis, which you would know well. Would you describe it for people who are not familiar? Um, first, I should say it's a store that sold really everything under the sun before, but it had to become more efficient. So I, I believe they got rid of their haberdashery department, but you could buy a TV, you could buy uh, so many people. I think everyone in the UK has some tea towel or some towel or a sheet or a pillowcase that says John Lewis or Janelle on it. You could buy homeware. Uh, they've always struggled with fashion. And then they also bought a supermarket chain. So they were omnipresent in England. Well, at the time I worked there, there were 60,000 employees. And oh my God, that's huge. I had no yeah. idea about the footprint. Mm. Yeah. And so in every town in England, there was a John Lewis. And I worked in their head office. I started in the press office as like a summer job and then moved to a buying office. And then for the very first time, they were creating a branding department. And I worked there, which I loved. That was an amazing job and an amazing environment to work in. There was a partnership. So while you work there, you were essentially a shareholder. And there was an amazing profit sharing scheme every year. So they would divide the profit evenly, the same percentage for everyone. Um, and so you, you could have a very low salary, but then get this giant bonus every year. And there was a lot of camaraderie. Everyone who worked there had to go work on the shop floor at least twice a year during the sales. And then whenever I went shopping there, which was often because you get a 20% discount, you'd say I'm a partner. <laughs> and the, the salesperson would look at you and give you the knowing nod. And so, yeah, I was very proud to work there. It was a great shop. It sounds like an amazing experience. Mm. I would imagine that you'd be quite keen on the haberdashery department. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I was sad when they decided we're letting it go. Oh, but this was all to do with the exam. So I don't know if I was there when I wrote the exam or I was in my next job. But I remember walking there Saturday being like, I'm just doing this out of, I feel like I should. But I loved retail. That's for sure. I love the excitement of every week finding out how the week sales, prior sales had gone and analyzing why maybe the sales weren't so good. It was always weather related, by the way. If it was great sales, it was the weather. If it was bad sales, it was the weather. And so, yeah, I was enjoying the retail world and branding and working with designers. So that was all good. Interesting. Retail is not looked upon very favorably, particularly in Europe. In the US and perhaps Canada, retail is understood as a much bigger industry. Of course, it's larger countries, so the industry is brings in more money. Perhaps it's changed a bit, but I remember around the same age as you, I was working at Christian Louboutin in retail mm. and I really enjoyed it. I was good at it. I, mm. but, but I remember <laughs> when I was younger, when I said to people what I was doing, people would go, oh, you work in retail. And they would have a head tilt yeah, because they were like lawyers and journalists. Yeah. And somehow my employment status was just a little bit lower. Did you find that was the same for you? I can relate for sure. Le Boutin for me, it would have been the opposite. I would have been envying your retail job, but just because 
I, I was always drawn to luxury. I think there was a real science to it and it, it, it is an incredible business, but I, I see what you mean. It wasn't perceived as, wow, you really put your studies to good use here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think my mom would have preferred me going into law. Now people have a higher regard for it, but at the time, maybe you're right. Mm, so it must have felt like a, a positive transition when you ended up in communications at Lancôme. Tell me, how did you get there? There was a, a very important step in between. I think it was like everything at the time you thought, if I really want to increase my salary, I've got to move jobs. And also, I did want to get into luxury. And so a friend of mine knew another woman who was hiring. And this woman was doing a startup, luxury skincare. And the company was Corner Skincare. Of course, it was Rebecca Corner, right? Yeah, exactly. And someone from Jimmy Choo put me in touch with her, Tara French Mullen, who you might know. Anyways, she was like, if you want to get into luxury, this is a way in. And I, I remember thinking like, I would love to see what it takes to do a startup. Because when you're coming from such a large company, you can't imagine like the beginning, like day one. And so I liked it. She had a team of four or four with me included. And had I not been there, I wouldn't have gone to Lancôme after. And Lancôme also wouldn't have hired me. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. What did you learn when you were there? Uh, oh, God, you learn so much just because, as I mentioned, you're such a small team. I, she didn't share everything. She wasn't giving me any strategic insight. I, I didn't know anything about how she funded her business, for instance, like the outside shareholders or anything like that. And she put me in the role of communications, just going out, meeting journalists, telling them about the products, ensuring that we were in the press, which today is still relevant. But back then it was the holy grail. You wanted your product pictured. And she looked at this so closely. So it was an important part of her business. You learn other things like by the time I joined her team, the brand had been around two years. They had huge successes, but you don't hold on to them necessarily long. Like she'd been in a lot of different stores. She'd been in Harrods. She had been in Harvey Nichols, I believe. And you just learn things about the business is you can get in somewhere maybe easily, but staying there is hard and ah. selling is hard. Yeah. That's still the case today, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> that, that part hasn't changed. Mm. And so going from a startup to the corporate behemoth that is L'Oréal Lancôme. What was that like? Oh, I, that was super exciting. And I really felt like I had no idea what I was getting into. None. I didn't know anyone who worked at L'Oréal. I certainly didn't know anyone in France who worked there. Maybe I'd heard of someone in Canada working at the... And L'Oréal's in Montreal in Canada. I didn't know what I was getting into, which is probably better. <laughs> In terms of the headhunter I met with was like, oh, you're doing communication now. And, and so this is what your job will be. And I was like, yeah, but I, I don't know if I just, I wasn't going to be meeting with journalists anymore. But I was like, I think I'm more drawn to the creative process, like creating the products. And she's like, oh, you'll figure, you know, you just keep your head down and do the communication and then you'll move around once you're there. Which did not happen. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. So... I would like to point to the difference between your previous job and that job. So both were called communication, but what did you end up doing there? 
so like I said, with Rebecca Corner, it was very much every day on the pavement meeting the journalists or doing something related to journalists, either planning something or doing writing press releases or communicating about the product in some way. And then you're sitting right beside the marketing person. And so everyone's helping each other with everyone's job. And then at Longcomb, because I was at the head office, they called it at the time International. I didn't meet any of the journalists. That's what the French Lancôme team does. So you're there thinking about how do we present this product to those teams who will then present it to their journalists. And it's such a well-oiled machine. I think everyone now in the industry knows that. But so you're basically packaging information for all these teams across the world so that on a given day, when you launch a new product, everywhere across the world, this product is going to be introduced either to the press three months before it launches, but to the press everywhere across the world three months before. Or the day it launches, you can be sure that every billboard, every subway, every ad for that product will go up perfectly synchronized. And it was amazing to be part of a team that worked like that because you did feel like, okay, we're super efficient. But yeah, it was very big. It was, it was the opposite of being in an office with three other people. You had your offices and you and there was amazing camaraderie in both cases, actually. But the pressure was very different at L'Oreal. I'd love to find out from you, what was the biggest takeaway? What did you learn there that sort of helped propel you into your, your path? There were a lot of positive things. The one thing I learned, maybe selling a lot of products, and it's obviously like the number one beauty conglomerate in the world. So they're very good at what they do. And the sales for Lancome were incredible. But I still didn't get a feeling of this product is speaking to me. It's speaking to everyone because it has to and it is. But at the same time, I didn't see, I don't think they were, it's not their wheelhouse, maybe, but the authenticity I wasn't feeling in their products. And that's what I wanted as a consumer and as someone working for a brand. I wanted to feel close. Ooh, I'm going to put a pin in that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to come back to that. Oh, fascinating. So I feel, and correct me where I'm wrong, that we got to know each other after I saw our common friend, Stephanie, who then lived in New York, wearing your amazing creations. I think that I was drooling well, looking, <laughs> Stephanie's a very good looking woman. Yes, that's true. I wasn't technically drooling on her, although I could have. <laughs> but I was drooling over the amazing Kate that you made her. And I was like, mm. it's so beautiful. Oh, and I think I stared, anything, yeah. <laughs> I stared at her for a while. <laughs> and then I was like, who made this? Who made this? And then she introduced us. Is that correct? Where my, yeah, is my I, memory wrong? You forgot me. Yeah, and we met. It was very random. It was when I was working for Rebecca Corner. You organized like a lunch at this hotel. Oh, no, so I John Lewis, actually. Yes. So I remember it was before Christmas. Yeah. And Tr- at the was, Churchill something. Exactly. And it was open kitchen, right? We yes. dined in the kitchen. Yes. Oh, no, I remember. That was yeah, really no, good. I, I was like, I've made it. I'm being invited to a press lunch. <laughs> And I'm really invited. I'm not like Rebecca saying, you can come with me. This was, I was invited. So yeah, I remember. And Steph was there. Yeah, Steph was there. Obviously, she's the one who, I think you you asked her any ideas. And Cosmo Jenks was there. There you go. Exactly. Okay. So we've placed it, but then we didn't see each other for a long time. And then there was the thing where 
You saw the cape. I saw the cape. And I was like, mm. oh, my God. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's a big jump there. That's People a really big jump. Like, how do you go from Lancome to capes? <laughs> how do you go from Lancome to capes? Let's make this the question. How does that happen? I'm sure it doesn't happen every day. You're probably right. There it was just like so random. When I was still at L'Oreal, I, I went to a party in Paris and met a Canadian woman. And she had on a fur scarf and I started giving her compliments on it. And she's like, wouldn't it be great to just sell these things? And it was so random. But here I was nearing the end of my L'Oreal experience. I, I'm just itching to create something and not have a team of 50 people approve it before it gets made and every single detail dissected so that you're left with something that's maybe a joint effort, but like a real compromise. And so when she said this so easily, I was immediately drawn to that idea. And I thought, yeah, there, there could be something to do here. And then I remember speaking to my French grandmother and she's like, oh, I used to make furs. She, just for a titre personnel, like for my mom and my aunt, they had rabbits on their farm. And so you'd use every part of the rabbit. And so she would skin them herself and make coats. And I have pictures of these coats. <laughs> and when I heard that, I was like, oh, wow, okay. And then it made it seem even more possible. If my grandmother's done this, like I'm not going to actually involve myself in the whole process, but it all started coming together. And, and then I... At the same moment, in par every like I created Corbin. It was called Corbin after my grandmother's maiden name, C O R B I N. I was working for my family's business as a consultant, but the business model I was creating was meant to be: we will only make something if we get an order, which is brilliant. And people are still doing that today. And I I find myself drawn to people who sell clothes that way. They'll show you their capsule collection for the season, and then you once you placed your order, then they make the clothes. Like it's just way better for the environment as well. But at that time, no one I knew was really doing that. So I was like, I'm not gonna, you don't need to invest a lot of capital or anything. It's, I'll, I'll show people some samples and if they like it, they order it. And that's what Steph did. I made myself a cape and she's get me one. And then it was like the whole process was what I love the most about that brand was I measure Steph. I'm, it was made to measure. And that's why everything fits you like a glove. And mm. and you can do those little details. Like I, sometimes I went too far. I have a friend who got a coat and I, in the inside, I sewed. I went to a museum on, of Dior, an expo, and bought this Lily of the Valley. Those things that you sew into. Of course. Like a, yeah, it's her coat. <laughs> so you can do bizarre things like that. But it, it felt so great, like that I could just do whatever I want. It was very liberating. So yeah, that I think that's why I needed to do that brand was it was like a knee jerk reaction to coming out of this big group where the approval processes were so long. I needed to do something that was like artisanal, immediate, just me. And then I loved the contact with the clients. And it felt very old school, like going to someone's house, taking their measurements. Mm. Then I'd go, I was spending all my time in the atelier, which funny enough is not far from where I live now, but at the time it was across Paris. So yeah, it was the most drastic career change you could think of. Was it also a way to make a connection to your ancestry, so to speak? Because it sounds like you were inspired by your grandmother as well. It brought you closer to something 
Hold on a second. Yeah, no, it's a different branch. Right? Actually, it's like French side. It was you connecting at the same time mm. with your French side and your Canadian side. So on the one hand yeah. side, you were consulting for the family company that we're going to talk about in a minute Yeah, in Toronto. But on the other hand, you had this through line to your grandmother in Normandy. Yeah, I, I guess maybe. And it would be normal or not normal, but logical that I went to sort of a a faceless environment or a huge business to like these little sort of family artisanal setups, which is way more me. I don't think I'll ever go back to a, a giant office. But So in the middle, what's striking is that you started your, most of your career at that point had been in, in cosmetics. Yes. And here you were branching out into artisanal, but fashion. Yeah. So I'm going to help the listeners since they don't see you and they don't know you and saying that you're a very stylish person. Thanks, Anne. <laughs> Where does your style come from? My my French grandmother, according to my mom, was, was always dressing the, her children in, in a way where she, she would take pages out of these Paris magazines and then go to a seamstress and make stuff. So there was that. And then I, on my Canadian side, I found out after my Canadian grandmother died that she was a window stylist in Boston before meeting or before having children. And she, for sure, in all the photos I see of her, really heavily accessorized. I inherited all her costume jewelry. Some of it's fallen apart, but, and I place them into my outfits almost every week. She had, what's her name? Who's still, Iris, who's still today make, wears amazing necklaces and African inspired. Mm. Like, I don't think my grandmother was not that extreme, but she definitely loved fashion. That's gorgeous. And you're still wearing some of her pieces. Oh, all the time. Wow. Mm. It's again, I feel a little bit struck about the strong connection to family, which I don't find is something that is so easy to connect to with mm. everyone. Hmm. <laughs> Sweet. So but you worked in fur, which is something that, of course, can feel alienating for some people. What was your grandmother called? I called her Mamina. Mamina. What was but her, her name? Is, name? Her name is Marie-Antoinette. She was born Marie-Antoinette Corbin. Ah, okay. So let's go with Mamina. Yeah, it's easier. <laughs> it's That's really what everyone funny. called her. I don't mm. know what year she was born in, but I remember my great-grandmother wanting to give me a gift while she was still alive of fur. And she put two minks, skinned minks that had been sewn back to back and put that around my neck. And my mom told me that I literally turned green and she took it off me because I looked like I was about to throw up. Because I had the head of both these poor animals just around, hanging around my I know exactly what you mean. I, I relate to that some of this experience but did it make you a little bit anxious or were you comfortable going in fur and what kind of fur did you decide to use for sure I was obviously aware of the and the, the it's still going on the anti-fur movement and it, and I can completely see why I was doing it on and again it's back to the previous job experience I had, which was huge, and the need to do something artisanal. Here, I, I could see every part of the process. And the other thing that I was starting to like, even way before, maybe 
knee-jerk reaction to my London living days where I was a chop, top shop consumer. I still kept actually a lot of my top shop clothes, but by the time I got to Paris, maybe it was just like the influence of French women and, and the way they dress themselves and having like staples. And now everyone does this. But at the time I was like, you, you never throw away a fur. Why would you ever throw away a sheepskin coat? It just doesn't. And you make a big decision when you buy it because it will cost more. And then and then you hold on to it. You pass it down. Like your story of a grandmother's fur. Once I got into Corbin, I think I got asked way more, can you revive my grandmother's coat rather than can I buy something new? And everyone wanted to keep their grandmother's coat or their mums. Or can you turn my mum's mink, her 80s long ankle length mink into a vest? Oh. So there's this idea with fur that, that you can, you hold on to it. You can even restyle it. But I did make a point of knowing every part of the chain. And so I ended up really going in on the sheepskin and on, on this Orilag fur that comes from a rabbit. So I went to Cognac and I saw how they were raised and the whole story, it was true. I saw it and it, and it, it was all about treating the animal in such a way that yes, if you treat them really well, you will get a better quality fur, but there was a high respect for these animals. Like that they were woken up with classical music. You never wanted to stress the rabbit. And then they would also use the rabbit for meat. And these rabbits live twice as long as other rabbits, but also rabbits in nature, they're very scared animals. And and then after I, I would see who's making it, and this is not an anti-China comment because I really like China actually. And But there, it's not like you're getting something made in a far off country and you don't know how it was made and it's super cheap. My items, like my seamstress in Paris, was, was quite expensive. And so you paid for that. The way you describe the process, it feels first very French, <laughs> but also it feels like it mirrors or it's a parallel to what Michelin star restaurants and chefs do by developing the relationship with the people who grow the food or breed the animals that then are used for. That's a really good comparison. The way if you go to these restaurants and you'll get a dessert and it'll be like the blueberries come from this person outside of Paris. And but that the, the cherry on the cherry coulis that comes from someone I know and Carcassonne. And then I had that with my any item I made, whether it was like a little clutch bag or inevitably there'd be a button or a zipper. And it was all in Paris. Go see the zipper guy. He's at the back of this cool. And you go discover this guy who's his little atelier is the size of a closet and he's from turkey and he's there making zippers all day and i go by if i needed a lining someone would say oh this person's got lots left over from something he did for this project or there's leftover fur from someone who was making gloves for chanel like i was constantly running around meeting all these people it was amazing i don't think that i knew this idea that you keep these items right i, I don't think i knew that I don't want to call it perennial, but it makes me realize that, yes, whether or not you believe in the use of fur for fashion, this is something that tends not to be discarded and destroyed. It gets passed mm -hmm. down generations or it gets sold to a vintage store and it doesn't end up in the bin as many of the other items are. For sure. And there's a huge savoir-faire. I worked with Grand Ouvrier de France. There was a, a really 
high level of respect in, in their savoir-faire. Mm. That's gorgeous. So you worked on this, you developed Corbin alongside working for the other branch of the families. Yes, the Canadian side. Yeah. The Canadians. Let's talk about the Canadians. <laughs> what do they do? What were you well, doing for them? So Dempsey Corporation was started by my Canadian grandfather. And he started the business later in his life. He had eight children, one of which is my father. And I want to say like 1956 is when 1954. he started 1954, Anne. Okay. Let's make sure I know it's 1954. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I was on the website yesterday, so. <laughs> 1954. And he basically had worked for another business that said, we're going to drop this line. You're doing really well with it. If you want to pursue this business under your own name, go for it. And he did. I think he was in his late 50s when he decided to start a business. And he was definitely a self-made man in terms of, I don't think he finished high school. And, and so he, the way my father describes it is he saw, he hired basically mostly his sons because this was in the fifties. The daughters were becoming nurses and the sons all had a flair for business for sure. Chances are the women would have as well, the daughters and his wife worked there too, more of in a secretarial role, but he was supplying back then it was chemicals, but right now we call it the industrial division, pigments and whatnot that go into cosmetics. And then eventually over time, my father started running the business. My grandfather passed away. And under his leadership, they opened up a food division. And then when my mom joined later on, she opened up a, a, a cosmetics division. So on top of the ingredients that were destined for cosmetics, my mom also developed accessories to go with it because they were getting those requests. Like we were selling a coal to Estee Lauder. And they said, could you send us a, a little pushette to put the coal eye pencil in? And that's when my mother jumped in, started going to China. That's funny because it almost feels like I'm there with her. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and she was brave. She was one of the first, and this, this says so much to about her personality, but she was going to China in the early 80s. She was one of the first to start doing business there. Please um, tell me more about her. That sounds amazing. She was going to the factories, placing orders and, and finding out which factory would work best and doing all this herself. Now you go with translators and whatnot. I really can't imagine how she used to do this. I did one China trip with her. Admittedly, she said it was very different from back in her day. And then also when she went, she'd go for long amounts. It's not, I'll just go to Hong Kong and Shenzhen for a week. She'd be gone for two, three weeks at a time. What were you doing then for the Canadians at the time? They had a, a big client, and they still do, buying a whole accessories line in Canada for a pharmacy. So everything you apply makeup with and remove your makeup with. So sponges and cloths and accessories. And the idea was I would find a similar client in France. So that's why I was able to do Corbin because there, there wasn't anything going when I joined. I was able to consult with them a few hours a week while I was looking for clients. And then eventually I found Monoprix and we still supply to Monoprix. That's a big client. <laughs> for people who know France, for people who don't know, you'll have to trust us on that. Mm. So at which point did you decide to leave Corbin behind? 
I was thinking about all this, the timing last night. It was just like this culmination of so many things going on. Once I did find Monoprix, you've got, a, as you said, a big client. Like I couldn't have a side job. I was the only employee in the office working on the account. And then also there was just this, the atmosphere had really changed around fur. And I, I was getting to the stage where I'm like, I don't even know if I want to walk around the street wearing fur so much anymore. Like everyone was fine with sheepskin and still is in, in ways because some people I still see it on the street. But I think I started just thinking, all right, I don't see a future in this anymore. Corbin, I'm not going to like completely let the name go, but it, it if ever it resuscitated, it would be something very different. And I, I'm not interested in that right now. And then also at the same time, my grandmother passed away and then as I mentioned, the client got bigger, but also I ended up having a baby and and then I got married and then it just seemed like everything was transitioning. And then at the same time with the family's business, this idea was germinating about like, let's create a brand because I'd had this experience from post-pregnancy, I was losing my hair. When I went into a pharmacy to ask what's the best product, she advised me immediately to not just use food supplements or topical. She's like, you really have to use the two together if you want to get the best results. And at the time she's, this brand is for the topical and this brand is the food supplement. And I, I was there at the till with these two different brands and I was like, okay, I'll do it. I, I understand the logic sound. And then I got home uh, and I was like, our, our family like does the food bit and we also know cosmetics. And and also like a Canadian colleague of mine had brought me to this lab in Brittany just on a sales call that he was doing. So it, it's all these things were happening and you absorb all these experiences and then all of a sudden they like come to the surface and they, they bind. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot going on. I'm painting a picture of a million things going on. But it was in a movie, you'd, you'd see all these scenes of like, that happened. And I discover algae in this lab that we, we actually supply to. And I loved that story. And then the, my Canadian colleagues like, we need to sell this lab's product. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if you just sell a product on its own. And then I found myself dreaming of the creating a brand again. <laughs> but in a completely different, like this way made more sense. It was like, Corbin was an entraînement training for. Sure. The, mm. As was Rebecca Corner, yeah. as was Lancôme. Oh, yeah. It was suddenly, you could bring all of your self and all of your expertise and your experience and what you were passionate about into the one brand. So Absolutely. <laughs> I'd love to know about the Brittany Lab because I feel like this is what, and tell me where I'm wrong, this is what sparked the early beginnings. Yes. I'm going to do a shout out to Lee. I don't know if he'll ever listen to me. Lee is our colleague in Canada who's an account manager for the industrial division. And so he's the one who goes to labs and sells ingredients that Dempsey sources. And he had gone to a trade show in Paris and he's bridge. I met this lab during the trade show and they're amazing. They have this product and it's so cool. And they use algae and the, the product is it's a powder and then it turns into gel and they've got these amazing capabilities. Let's go see them. Do you want to come with me? And I was like, for surely I'll come for the ride. And then I'm telling the French office that Lee and I are off to Brittany. They're like, which lab? And and we said it and, and they're like, we, we supply them with sugar. 
And it's a special type of sugar called triolose. It's natural. It's very expensive. It's from Japan. It's used in food to keep icing hydrated or sushi moist. It, it really is great for capturing the hydration and the moisture. So they sell it to this lab because this lab puts it in their skincare products. But again, when I did that sales call, I'm thinking of all this, but you're just storing the information and then later it comes out. But when I was there, I, I loved this lab. Another family business right on the sea. They showed us like, here we grab the algae, and then we process it ourselves. There's only two labs in Brittany that process the algae themselves. And then I kept that whole experience under my hat for a, I think almost a year before we did something with it. So yeah, Lee was the genesis, as my father says. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And so a year later, what happened? Basically, I, I ran the idea by my family. I'm like, I think we should create a brand here. Let's go B2C for the first time. And this is where when you work in these family business environments, I don't, I can't compare because I haven't worked for another family business, but I do feel like at Dempsey, you can share an idea like that and no one's going to think you're crazy. And it was the opposite. Everyone was super excited right from the get-go. I'm like, we have our in-house food experts, like they can help do the formulation. And, and then we have this amazing relationship already with the lab. We're not just starting something out of nowhere with you know, no intel and no relationship. Right away, they're like, okay, what would it look like? And then I get into the part I love the most, which is Yay. branding. And I had met a designer when I worked at L'Oreal. You have pivotal meetings in your career or life and meeting Guimet was one of them. So when I needed to do a logo for Yen Wellness, I, we'd stayed friends anyways, but she understood where I was trying to go with this brand. And so we started working on what, what would you call it? I think it was funny. I had the reveal of the logo and the name at the same time. I didn't want to tell them I'm naming something after mummy. Just because that, I don't know what, how they would react. I thought, let's see, let's show them how cool it could look. And then even my mom, I was like, I'm surprised she's not more shaken up by this, but she loves it now. Um, so you called the brand after your mother. Yes, yes. I missed a step, but yes. And, her, and you spell her name? Y-A-N-N-E. And it is pronounced? Yan. Yan Wellness. Yeah. I just want to point yeah. that you had called the previous brand after your yes, grandmother. I know. The family theme yeah. is much stronger. Than Everyone's a target. <laughs> if you're related to me, watch out. I think the Yan brand made sense to me because um, she had such a big role in the family's business. It was like an homage. And it was right at the time where my mom's now 81, but she was in retirement phase. And also when you're starting a brand to all those people out there who are listening and will start a brand, like there's a lot of names that are taken <laughs> and you have to, you can't just name something exactly what you want. I don't know what I would have done anyways, but you, I knew Yen wasn't taken. And then her name is a Brittany name, even though she's from Normandy. Her name's a made up name, by the way, with an E is her original name is Jeanne Marie, but her older sister couldn't pronounce her name. And so my grandmother thought, okay, let's just switch it. Good yeah. for her to change it to Jan. <laughs> Jan Marie Wellness, probably. That'd be a harder sell. Yeah. Uh, so, 
Yeah, for, it's funny because with my colleague, Celeste, who's been with me almost from the beginning, when I explained to her, I'm like, yes, yeah, such a dynamic name. She's really like, you, you, I guess it's because that's the way I see my mom. But Celine, she wasn't familiar with my mom. And I guess Yen I, I don't, was an older person's name in France now. Like it's maybe like an Yvonne. I don't know. <laughs> For me, I see dynamic. It's fresh. It's funny. It's not too feminine. It's not masculine. Even though Yen without an E is very masculine in France. It's going to be a man's mm-hmm. name, but. Hmm. Yeah, I don't have the same version as Selene either. For me, it's also quite fresh as a name. So I guess we we all project depending on the people we know. Yeah, exactly. And so there you had it. You did the reveal. Yeah. <laughs> what did the family say? So they, they didn't blink an eye. They were like, yay, great. Yeah, it was, no one said no. That's for sure. I guess I put them in a position. Of, <laughs> how could my brothers be like, terrible name? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it was almost like a, a trap you had to say you liked it and then everyone this is I think the spirit of the company is really okay let's try it let's see if it works and everyone's hugely supportive not just in my family but really I feel the whole company that sounds great so tell us a little bit about what Yen Wellness stands for what's unique about the brand so there is that aspect where we're combining food supplements with cosmetics so the idea is If you want to feel great, you can't just lean in on one. You got to use both. So someone like you, I know you were probably using both for years now, but it's great to have a brand that's really watching the ingredients going into both because you you can have some interesting synergies between products. And and then on top of that, if I look at one of the greatest inspirations for this brand is definitely the sea. And... In Normandy, we have a family home by the sea. And so all, all my summers were spent, like that was the outing. You just go to the beach. And it was also something that was always associated with health and wellness in terms of if you weren't feeling well, my grandmother would be like, just go jump in the water. And if I had a bobo or a scab or a, some, a wound, it would be like the water. So even as a kid, I remember bringing algae back into my bath. just thinking I loved the seaweed I wasn't one of those kids that was scared of it like I'm walking right through it Mm -hmm. can't see my legs and I love it and (laughs) I'm the opposite (laughs) yeah I I always thought it was there was something cool about it so and soothing and then and France has these telassos which I don't know if everyone's aware they're these spots they're located uh, along the ocean and there they're using all the elements of the sea to make their clients feel better, whether it's a seaweed wrap or looking at what you eat. But the idea really also comes from breathing in sea air is so good for you. The air, iodé. I don't know how you would say that in English. So just even breathing that in is so good for you. And I thought this is this a unique French experience. I would love to bottle this up and across the food supplements and the cosmetics, give people the opportunity to create a spa-like experience in their home. It's, you've got you've to believe in the goodness of the sea, which would be hard not to. Like there's lots of studies that people who live by the ocean are happier, or feel better. And then, and then so yeah, the, those were the USP is really this Telasso at home experience. We're calling it neo-telesos because telesos can be can feel 
Old fashioned. I, yeah, old fashioned. Everyone's walking around in white robes, probably a lot older than you and me, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they've got like their bracelet, their plastic bracelet for finding their next. Yeah, appointment. you're not making it sexy just even yeah. talking about so it. So that's, I don't even know if I want to go. I, I know I don't necessarily want to go to a Teleso for the weekend. Like I'd rather have Teleso products and do it at home. That's the truth. So mm-hmm. it's also more affordable. So yeah, those are the USPs. And then the fact that it was, it's a family business brand. I think, I don't know if that speaks to a lot of people, but it's a brand where you're allowed to launch a product because it makes sense for you. It's not like there's no marketing team that said right now, this is trending. Like you have to come out with this product. It's, and it has to have these ingredients in order to meet this price point. Oh, and I forgot to mention it's for women over 40. But what would women over 40, what would make them happy? What can give them uh, these moments of serenity and wellness? What are they looking for? Mm. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm 45. So that's why I I targeted these women. But then it's just funny the way it works out. Everyone who's in the team in Canada and France who helps us on this project, a lot of women and a lot of us over 40. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you to get more into the product because I'd love for you to explain when you talk about food supplements, what did you bring to market? What made sense for you with the know-how of your Dempsey group teams and the women that you wanted to serve? I don't want to ever launch like 60 products or whatever. We had to start with like, what's what's going to be our first food supplement? And again, because I wanted the sea inspiration, we started with magnesium because 76% of women are missing magnesium, have a deficiency. And it's 72% of men. So I thought, okay, we should have an interest in an audience with this product. At the time, we used marine magnesium. We've now changed the type. And we've combined it with hyaluronic acid, which is really well known in skincare. It's less well known that it works super well on your joints. And the other specificity, and this is again tied back to the Teleso experience, the spa, is I didn't want the food supplements to be pills that you just swallow. I wanted the moment that you're taking them to be part of the relaxation. So I'm forcing you to sit down for five minutes and drink something. (laughs) (laughs) There's your punishment. The beauty drink was the first drink. It was, you know, we're going to put hyaluronic acid in our skincare, but we're also going to put it in our food supplement. And you're going to get this ingredient, the, the sugar, like you can do multiple things with one ingredient and you're going to ingest it. Often it's just sitting in your products, but here it's actually going to go through your body. But yeah, I went with like in French, you say les valeurs sûres, food supplements. I didn't want to go with things that are maybe very trendy, but no scientific evidence. So I wanted to use ingredients that everyone recognized that were clinically proven so that even though we're a small indie brand, you could still trust us based on the ingredients that we're using. And then our forte at Dempsey is just to make this taste good. We're really into flavors as well. And there, it was funny because we launched it during COVID. And so we were doing everything by Zoom and the the Canadian girls and the US girls were tasting it. And we all have very different tastes. They love sweet stuff. So then and I were like, okay, we're going to take in their opinions, but <laughs> we're definitely not doing a blueberry or strawberry or watermelon or you know, lychee drink. <laughs> then the next food supplement after that was probiotics and prebiotics. And that was for sure a reaction to COVID. I thought 
right now, everything we've gone through, I'm more reason ever to look at a food supplement that will make you feel like your health is, you, you've got some control over it just because of everything we went through when people are falling sick all around you. And I'm sick right now, actually. It's not a good sell for the, but building your immune system. And you do have to get sick, by the way. I'm not trying to come out with products that a promise of you'll never get sick. You need to get sick. This is how you build your immune system and keep it in shape. Yeah. But I knew probiotics are one natural way to maintain your immunity, your immune system. So that was the second product. And again, something that I didn't want to pill. So you put it on your tongue, it's powder. There we had a, a colleague from Montreal who helped with the formula. And in Canada, it's very common to put probiotics on your tongue. In France, it was completely novel. So we won an award for that product, I think because of the innovation of the, the format. Yeah, I tried it and I took it for a month. I loved it. It's delicious. It's delicious there. The irony is, even though we're good at flavoring, we took an inulin, a fiber, which is the prebiotic that feeds the probiotic. We had such a nice grade quality that, that comes from chicory. And we were just like, let's, let's not add a flavor, actually. This tastes perfect. Yeah, it's lovely. It does feel very natural. There's, There's no added anything in. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> There's just four ingredients. So it was simple, but that's what also what I was looking for. I, I, I want things to be very straightforward, that the ingredients lists are easy to understand and never put something in it unless you really have to. I believe, and correct me where I'm wrong, that the brand really stands for natural beauty and wellness. Tell me how that's easy or not easy to navigate today. And that's back to my mom, Yen. She, for me, is one of the happiest people I've ever met. And so, you know, for a wellness brand, I thought this is a good place to start. Yeah. And she's very natural. And I was so lucky to, that, that she raised me because she never looked too much at herself in a way, aesthetically or looks-wise. I, I never heard my mom complain about her looks or or say I'm getting old or or... And certainly always boosted me. So for instance, I'm not going to make any anti-age products. And I just want you to you know, have glowing, great skin. The products are good quality that you nourish your skin, you protect it. I don't know even if I buy into the fact that skincare can really change your skin. And certainly I find it a little dubious that it can get rid of wrinkles and all that. So I'm more into promoting great looking skin. And I'm my influence is more on, on the natural side. And and for sure, that's a whole other conversation. But if you're going to recreate the spa feeling at home, it's just for you to have a, a, a great moment with yourself and that self-care. And it's not looking at yourself and thinking, oh, this isn't right. I need to change this. And how do I get rid of that? It's It's more about embracing who you are. So two things came out of this conversation for me. So far, I really want to meet your mother. <laughs> like, really, like when I come to Paris next, we need to figure out if she's oh, traveling. Like, we need to go. I would love you too. Oh, I would love to meet her. And the other thing that's sorry to be pitching ideas to you. Yeah. <laughs> but I love, every time I see you, I come out of this being like, oh, I hope she doesn't charge me for that meeting, but she could. <laughs> I was wondering, would there be a future in which there is a mini spa or a talasso. You did yeah. say yourself, you grew up in 
Normandy. I know you adore Normandy. The brand obviously has this strong bond with Brittany and the algae. Would you ever imagine a physical presence and an experience for Yad and Wellness? And again, this is typical you. When we meet, you bring me to a place where I don't even dare to dream. But yeah, <laughs> it's so hard. I know, but that's not a reason not to do something. But short answer is yes, I would love that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that would be down, down the road. Yeah, sometimes we need the dreams down the road because mm-hmm. it helps build the vision. When I hear the talk about the lab and the science and the sea, they're right on the water and the algae. And it is true. It's sometimes hard to motivate someone to get out and spend more money Mm. to go into a more immersive experience. But maybe there is one way in the future where it just makes sense for you and your family that actually it would be the merging of the... French and the Canadian. Yes, you're right. <laughs> I'm loving this theme, by the way. I had no idea. This is where we're going to go. It does come back a lot. So <laughs> this is it. You can't run away from your roots. Uh-huh. And I certainly haven't. Yeah, I don't know for other people. For you, certainly not. Yeah, it feels no, like it's, not. it's yeah. more almost like embracing all of it yeah. and, and doing it from France as well. Hmm. Uh-huh. So you talked a bit about the client for Yan Wellness. I just wanted to dig into it. You did that choosing women over the age of 40 because you felt you weren't getting what you needed or tell me where I'm wrong. It's not like I couldn't find a cream. It's not all that. It was more, I like the idea of an indie brand. This again could be post L'Oreal experience, but I no longer wanted to buy any beauty products from big companies. I'd like to stop you there and ask you, do you know why? Because I can tell you I'm the same and it's been a long time. Why do you think that is? And again, I don't want to like criticize too much. (laughs) But maybe I can share my experience to help. Okay. That I had a reaction to some of the, for me, there was a fragrance component. I found that a lot of brands have, there's a head of an issue with the colorants and the smells. So Mm. I find that, Naturally, even though I don't, I have not had any allergic reactions or anything, I became almost, uh, I've just said allergic, I became almost anti-coloring cream. And so some of the Mm. Estee Lauders, even they're really famous, they're like pistachio green-ish and they smell like very peculiar. And for some reason that just, I was like, I just can't take it. And so I very naturally went towards brands that had no colorants and no smell. Yeah, I'm also a little bit cynical. These big brands become machines and to sustain the machine, you can't be so nimble and all of a sudden decide like, oh, we made food supplements and capsules. Let's do powders because they've bought, invested in factories that have machines. Like when we tried to make our food supplement in France, they're like, no, do the capsule. Like we were being told by the manufacturers, change your idea. Like we have capsule machines. And when you're smaller, you can adapt more. Like there is an idea, like scaling is very important. And there's a tipping point where I think you're too big and all of a sudden you lose a certain, what is it? Authenticity, but you, 
I don't feel like it's not like I need to know the person behind the brand. And sometimes like with Clarence, for some reason, I put Clarence aside from the big brands because it's a family business and that can be naive, but I, I even like smaller. And now there was like a plethora of brands out there, but I just felt in France when all these indie brands were coming out, they seemed targeted to the Gen Z and fun, cute packaging. That's interesting because I was chatting today with a young woman entrepreneur about her project and she was telling me she was very in, inspired by a brand that I've never heard of. Perhaps you're talking about one of those called Oh My Cream? Yeah, they're a little... I don't know that one. Okay, they're newer. So at the time, I think I would have been okay with Oh My Cream because it's minimalist packaging. Mm -hmm. No, they're a chain store, and I'm surprised you don't know them now. They used to just... I bring don't together. go to chain stores, babe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I buy indie brands like Gun <laughs> Wellness, so I exactly. wouldn't actually well, know. Nah, what's they, in the they'd chain. be the kind of chain store I'd be okay being on their shelves because <laughs> she, she's a very successful entrepreneur. She started one store where she wanted to group all these LA brands that you couldn't find in France, and then things took from there. And so now, when I say chain, I don't know. She must have thirty stores, mm -hmm. but she's come out with her own brand line. So I understand there were lots of indie brands and you felt like Not for a lot of people were targeting the younger generation and you felt like there was a real opening in the market for an indie brand like yours to target women a little bit older. Yeah. And I think also that other aspect that I was touching on earlier, like I, you're entering your forties. I wasn't buying into the whole, I need to buy an anti-age cream. And I just wanted a, a brand that would not overpromise. But I could trust. I find that fascinating. And you focusing on aspects of your mother's behavior around the aging process and mm. the vitality that you found in her is somewhat what you mirror in the products that you bring out. Absolutely. The French word equilibre. And, and there is this idea of don't just be focused on your cosmetics, but also what you're eating. And because she grew up in, in a small village in Normandy in the 50s, she ate very good food, which is no longer available. And so I feel there's a huge need for food supplementation mm -hmm. that we wouldn't have had 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Mm. So I'd like to go back to talking about you rather than talking about the development of the brand. How does it feel to be at the helm of your own project and working with your family? How do you feel about who you are today? I feel really great. It's been a hugely positive experience in my life. I, I'd had, like, when I started my first job, if you'd said you're going to work for your family's business later on, I would have really, I know it sounds unbelievable, but I would have been like, I don't think so. I don't want to work with my brothers and my parents. And I think, as you said earlier, you have to go through all those other experiences. And it's not surprising that I feel better in a family environment. Um, but I'm at the helm of my own brand and there is pressure because when it is your family, people think, oh, it's just your family. So if you fail, no big deal. But like, you, you don't want to fail in front of your family, <laughs> especially your older brothers. Definitely. Yeah. And you just don't want to fail in general. I know there's this whole, you have to fail and it's cool to fail, but, but between us, it's not, you want it to succeed. And so I'm at the helm of this. And so many people are involved that I just don't want to let anyone down. I want them to see like, 
all this effort you've put in has paid off. And this idea that we've gone from a a sourcing and distributing company to a brand, like that's unheard of. And yet I think it's achievable. And I know it is. So there is pressure, but at the same time, I can't compare myself to those other founders who have mortgaged their home and it's do or die, um, which is a great place to be in because I don't make decisions like I, everything, is this good for the brand? Not like, will I be able to pay people next month if I do this? And Mm. that's a luxury position to be in. I'd love to ask you, this is not the kind of podcast where we try to give advice to people, but your path is particularly interesting because you launched the brand only two years ago. It was in the middle of COVID. This was not your plan. This just came out from the synchronicities of what what was happening around you. And I I love that moment because I remember you told me about it when you were, you yourself were in need of better supplements and something topical to help you. Mm. Is there any piece of advice or any challenge, a story that you want to share that could support or inspire people who are thinking about launching their brands? I guess it, it you have to be open to it, but so many people out there, including myself, still think I can do this, but I can't do that. And I keep thinking of one of my best friends, Soraya, who went to a Montessori school. It, it, not in an arrogant way, because she's not arrogant at all, but she really can believe, she, she does believe that she can make anything. It's her and her husband, or I don't think he, maybe he probably did go to a similar school. But they renovated their own home, they did their plumbing, they did their kitchen, like all these things where you'd be like, I can't do that. And then at one point, it doesn't make sense for me to learn how to do that, because it would take a whole year for me to learn how to like, you do have to do the learning. But I would say, it sounds cheesy to say, but if you want to do something, you absolutely can. You just have to put the work in to learn how to do it. But as you said earlier, when I launched Corbin, I'd never done fashion. And maybe I'd grown up with fashion inspirations, but I did have doubts about, I always loved drawing and I used to draw clothes and I did take one course, but other than that, I was like, no, why would someone buy something that I designed? We've got Chanel and and Dior in this town. Like why would someone choose one of my models? And then I realized, I think with maturity that there's markets for everyone. So someone might not like what you designed, but someone else will maybe Yen Wellness is not for everyone and that's totally fine. But if it's done well, it will appeal to someone. So there's no exact story there, Anne, but maybe people have to go through different experiences to get there. But Mm -hmm. at least try, like for sure, try these things and see how they pan out and they will inevitably lead to something else. It's really interesting to hear you talk about your specific experience and this calls to conversations I've overheard in people near me and someone telling someone else, oh, but it's a one in, one in a million chance that you could make this work. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you hear family members or loved ones or <laughs> close friends who perhaps should not be close friends <laughs> telling you, oh yeah, but it's never going to work. Yeah, I think it's interesting, this story about trusting that anyone can do anything if they put their mind to it. But Anne, what you just mentioned there is definitely if you're going to 
start something, like really watch who you hang out with because <laughs> I only want to surround myself around people who believe that you can absolutely do what you want to do. I just feel like sometimes, especially in France, some people can be really close to you've never done it, but go for it. And, uh, mm. and that's what I, L'Oreal was a great experience, but also there it was like your communication, you can't do marketing. And it's, yeah, you absolutely can. There's, you can, you've got to put the work in, like I said, but you definitely should not let someone else tell you what you're capable of. Mm. So talking about beauty, because you neatly circled back, there was one question I had for you. And, and, and I don't know if it's the right question to ask you, but I'm interested. What do you imagine or what do you want to see in the future of beauty and the future of Yan Wellness? The future of Yan Wellness, there's comparisons to if you're going to go into lifestyle, are you trying to be like a goop brand? And maybe it's good that there's goop and other brands that aren't as intense that all live together. I definitely don't want to be prescriptive and go too big on telling people how to live their lives. I don't know if it's because of the industry that I'm in and I'm constantly listening to podcasts and Instagram accounts where it's giving people advice and tips. And it's very hard to listen to sometimes very contradicting advice. And right now there's a, a massive criticism of sugar. And, and I'm heard enough to know, okay, fine, it's probably not good for you. But it's really hard getting all this advice. So I think I'm scared for the beauty industry and, and wellness, because it's getting so hypercritical, that unless you are the monk that everyone's telling you you should be, it's you're gonna, I think it's gonna backlash, and you're gonna end up feeling worse about yourself. And so I think it would be great if people back to the word balance, whereas mm. it's back to yen. Yeah, the middle way. Equilibré. Especially a little bit of exercise. I don't think you have to go nuts in any direction. The intensity with which I see some people on Instagram embracing things is every time now I have a hot shower, I think of all the advice I've heard about you should only have freezing cold showers now. And I and maybe you do this. I don't know. I could see it time to time being like, okay, that was exhilarating. But I can't start every morning unhappy. Yeah, I'm not great with the cold shower. I'm going to try to do cold water swimming since I'm near a lake this winter. Okay. That's a different experience. But there's also the exact opposite trend going on. I don't remember what the name of that TikTok trend was, but there was like the everything shower. And that's for people who don't have a bathtub. Okay. <laughs> but they're trying to get like that spa experience and do everything in the shower. And they're definitely not doing it in cold water. Yeah. So you could argue that everything and their opposite could be developed as a trend. Mm. Just holding on to the principle that all of this, all of these tips and advice, and it's all meant to make you feel better. So hold on to what actually makes you feel good and zoom in on that. And if it's a little hot shower in the morning to get you going, that's fine. And then I understand we're obsessed with generating content. So you have to say, okay, if you said the hot shower thing, you got to say something different next time. So it's end the hot shower with 30 seconds of freezing shower. So there's a lot of that going on as well. Again, maybe it's because I'm watching Instagram constantly, but there's so much information being thrown at us. Yeah, I don't 
love spending time on Instagram anymore. So I feel mm. a little bit removed from this, but I do read long form content where people tell me what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> well, so they break down the trends and I have to tell you, it really makes a difference. Yeah, I bet. I'm all, even in podcasts, though, you're getting mm. that kind of, we're in a podcast right now and I hope people listen to it, but <laughs> you're still getting advice or maybe it's the ones I'm listening to. Mm. What I would love to see in the future of this industry, instead of advice and tips, is telling stories about what yeah. works for each person. Maybe the balance we're talking about is realizing that some days we need the hot shower or a long bath, and some days we need the cold shower. Yeah. Because we're not equal to ourselves every day, right? That's why when we talk about mindfulness, we're often when I write about mindfulness, I like to explain to people that different practices do different things. You're looking for different benefits, different effects. And it's like building a toolkit. So whatever you need to look after yourself because you're too nervous or mega excited or super sleepy or feeling really unwell or down, we reach for different tools from Mm. our toolkit. I think that's what I'd like to see people promoting. And sometimes I watch Instagram and I do learn a tool, which is great. Like two years ago, I learned all about breathing to calm you down. And sometimes I'll breathe. I hope it's not noticeable, but like in a meeting, if I'm feeling tense, I'll start practicing my breathing. And it really does help. So there's great information going around as well. Yeah, perhaps the difficulty with the content that we're bombarded with on platforms like TikTok or Instagram is it's too short. Sometimes you do need to delve in the deeper learning so that you can just own that stuff. Mm. But I guess that here's where good authentic brands can really make a difference is by Mm. not playing this sort of very catchy game and going a little bit deeper in in their storytelling. Yeah, this is something we think about when because obviously we post stuff and I want to steer clear of anything that'll make you feel guilty that you didn't do this or that. You hope that as a brand, you're helping people, whether it's a wellness brand or I was just reading through the Infinite Game Book about Patagonia. There's Infinite so many- Game yeah. Book, yes, <laughs> by Simon Sinek. Which amazing recommendation and and so much food for thought, but you definitely, we have a responsibility as people who are out there building brands to think how are we really helping people? Because if you're just out there with a cool business idea that'll make money, I don't think that's really something that's worth it in general. Thanks so much for sharing that. That's a good place to to end on possibly. Mm. Before we go to my quick fire round, of course, if that's okay with you now, let's go to my closing questions, which for those of you who are not familiar with them, I like to ask the same question to all my guests because I feel it's incredibly enriching to hear the the different answers and the stories that come up. I hope that you'll enjoy them as well. Some of them are very hard. I apologize for that. (laughs) I'm I'm not. So... What is your favorite word? And when I say favorite word, it's not necessarily because you use it often or how it sounds, but a word that you could live with, you could technically tattoo on yourself. And I'm not asking you to tattoo yourself. When I read that question, I was like, this is exactly why I am glad I never got a tattoo because I was thinking of 
in my, it made me laugh. 15 years ago, my favorite word would have been like nightcap, cocktail, apéro. Imagine if I was walking around with a cocktail tattoo. Now, for sure, the the priorities change. It's funny because I was asked the other day, just it, it did not see this coming. Like, write a word. Someone gave me a piece of paper. Oh, amazing. And said, yeah, write a word. I'm asking everyone I know in my life to just write a word down. And I was so caught off guard. I could see that I didn't have time to do anything. Like, it was a funny exercise because she's packing her bags and gave me the paper. And I was like, and I was surprised by my own answer. I wrote nature, which makes me sound like, <laughs> I don't know. Someone would be like, really? You, you wrote that? Nature, I, I do feel great in nature. But then now that I've had more time to think about it, like that's the word that popped up. For sure, ocean, like waves, those, the sea, that like those are words that make me dream. I love that you had to do this exercise and that it made you think. Yeah. About a month ago, I did a masterclass with The Guardian with a, a, a British writer called Rick Samadar, who writes amazingly funny columns for The Guardian. And in the middle of a writing exercise, he made us write our five favorite words and my mind went absolutely blank, but could not think. And the words that came through were super weird. And I looked at them and it was a very short exercise, like maybe two or three minutes. And then I realized that all of the words actually were related to my tone of voice. Either my voice now or the tone of my written voice it blew my mind so yeah really cool yeah I mean ocean nature sounds good (laughs) I have to admit when I had the little book I was like started flipping to see what other people wrote but I I wasn't able to (laughs) this is is seriously random Um, awesome yeah next what does connection mean to you I thought about this and the first thing that came into my mind was when you laugh over the same thing with someone and it can be with a complete stranger. I actually think that's when it's even the best. Like you're on the subway and you just someone, a kid said something and people who don't know each other will look at each other and start laughing. And so I feel like connection is when you're, when you can feel something with someone else and you don't even need words. I particularly like the laughing moment. It can be with someone you know very well, like it doesn't have to be a stranger. But when you both laugh over the same thing at the same moment, I feel very connected. Mm. What song best represents you? And this was so tricky because I'm someone who loves music for sure, but I can never remember the words to songs. Like it's very embarrassing. So I guess when I start listening to a song, I just daydream or my mind goes, or I'm terrible at remembering lyrics. That's definitely true. But I chose Hard-Headed Woman by Cat Stevens for a bunch of reasons. One is Cat Stevens was the first CD I ever bought with my own money. And I still remember like coming back to the table where my family was sitting. It was in Normandy, actually, in Cherbourg. I was very proud of my CD. I loved his voice. And then that was part of, must have been 15 at the time, but was part of my youth. Still love his voice. And then the song's great, just about an independent woman who does how she feels or what she feels and isn't really concerned about what other people think. I'm not saying I'm that woman. <laughs> Sounds good to me. I love that. What is the sweetest 
thing that's ever happened to you? This was tough. I'm lucky because there were, I had all these examples. But what's funny is with all my examples, I don't think I knew at the time it was so sweet. It's like when you're asked later, you're like, yeah, that was sweet. And they're just small gestures that show that someone's been thoughtful and you weren't expecting it. Like, I don't even know which one to choose. My, my friend Sarai, who I mentioned earlier, she got me at the airport. This was like at the stage where no one was picking people up from the airport anymore. Like I must have been 32 or something. She's, I'll pick you up. And then when I arrived, she had a bouquet of flowers. But now every time I come out of the airplane terminal in Toronto, and it's the exact same one as the day she was there, I see her with the flowers. So it's a reminder. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. yeah. And she's I, never picked me up since. It'd be crazy to pick someone up now. <laughs> I hope she listens to the podcast and picks you up one day. <laughs> Do you know what? what? Just you making me think about this, it makes me want to cry because my dad came to drop me off and pick me up from the airport every time. Mm. Oh. Oh. Anyway. That is sweet. And I know I'm saying this and some people, like when I arrive at the airport, people still do it. It's just the traffic now. Yeah, I wouldn't want to put anyone through it, but, but it's it is, still it is sweet. sweet. Yeah, it's still sweet. Mm-hmm. What is a secret superpower that you have? Secret superpower. Secret. Yeah, I wonder why you use the word secret. So no one should because know. Because I've asked you so many <laughs> questions. Perhaps you've revealed most of your superpowers. So something you haven't mentioned yet. I think I, and this is important since we're talking about entrepreneurialism, is that I can get over a setback pretty quickly. Or even if someone's offended me, I don't hold a grudge. Like I move on very quickly. Definitely a superpower. Yeah, I'm happy I don't. And it's liberating that, you know, someone's done a, a fast one on you or whatever, I'm pretty quick to forgive them. What is a favorite book that you can share with us? So I read it years and years ago. It was A Suitable Boy by Vikram Seth. Have you read it? You look, yeah, no? Not yet, but I saw the TV series and it's so good. Oh, okay. I have not seen the TV series. It is so good. I, I don't even think I knew it. it was out. Is this on Netflix? Somewhere. I don't remember what I saw it on. I saw it last year. It is beautiful. I'm happy I went to India before reading it. It really is the book that makes you cry and laugh. Like you're, it's amazing. I just made a note of it. I'd like to actually read the, the book. Where is somewhere you visited that you really felt had an impact on who you are today? I'm going to go with The very first city I went to on my own with, again, it's getting a lot of shout outs. We were 15 when we went to Barcelona. The pretext was we were going to learn Spanish. That's why my parents were okay with the idea. (laughs) I love the pretext. And then we went backpacking just for a week. But that for sure opened the floodgates. After that, it was like, I need to travel every summer. Ah. And the origin story. Yeah. And we took a language class with other students. And that's always been a huge kick for me to be in a classroom with people from other countries. I didn't have that so much at McGill, but for sure at LSC, like a small class where you're about 10 people and people get into details of their different upbringings and that I love. So that I got my first taste for that in Barcelona. 
I had my eat, pray, love moment when I went to China. <laughs> for I've been to China lots of times, but one of the last times I went, I stayed for a month and lived with two different families. And that was great. Because I was older doing something like that, usually you think you're young when you do that. And I knew it was unusual to do it. it must have been 37. And that's great to do something that's usually reserved for younger people at 37. Like it made me feel young again, not old. You'd think, oh, you're going to feel depressed, like living like a billeted person in someone's home. But it was the exact opposite. Awesome. Where was this? In Shanghai? In Hangzhou. Hangzhou. In Hangzhou. So I picked a smaller town. I feel like town. I remember that you told me that, but it's, it feels like it's in the back of my mind. Yeah, I'm super glad I did that. Obviously, at 37, if you're married and have kids, you can't go off somewhere for a month. But if you could carve out... I, I met one of my husband's friends, and my dad used to always do this too. If you can't go away for a month, like at least go do something you love doing for a week. Even if you do have your family and whatnot to look after, it's mm. great to keep learning something. Imagining that you can step into a future version of yourself. <laughs> mm. I'd like to know, what do you think is the advice that future you needs to give present time you? The future me would have been like, it's, it's all going to work out. Like just patience. And enjoy the ride. My father's always telling us about the journey. It's all about the ride. And my last question, what brings you happiness? My, my greatest happiness is trying to make other people happy or, or trying to make them happier. Or if, if I can see a way that, you know, and this, again, I think comes from my upbringing, but I definitely feel happy when I've helped others. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anne. Bridge, this yeah. is so great. Oh, I don't know. You did your first <laughs> podcast. I did my first podcast. Everyone listening, please clap wherever you are. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I've Thank really you. loved our conversation and it was so much fun and so enlightening actually to hear some of the stories behind your experiences, your studies and I feel like I know so much more about your family. I would love to see pictures of Marie Antoinette. <laughs> and again, kudos to your mother for changing her name. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a treat doing it with you, Anne, because also do people, I don't think, have the opportunity to like delve into these kinds of questions. And even though it's not easy, I really enjoyed it. I'm so glad. So what I will do is, of course, I will put all the links in the show notes for people to be able to contact you to discover Yan Wellness and to get in touch if, if they'd like to. As you said, if anyone has any questions, if I can help anyone, um, I'm there, here. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank Hopefully you. see you very soon. Yes. Latest, yes. it will be January in Geneva. Absolutely. And so have a, a wonderful rest of the evening until I see you Thank next. Thank you. Thank you, and Take care. You too. Bye-bye. So, friends and listeners, thanks again for joining me today. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anavi on Twitter, Anne Muletaler on LinkedIn, or on Instagram at underscore 
Out of the Clouds, where I also share daily musings about mindfulness. You can also find all of the episodes of the podcast and much more on my website, anvmilitale.com. If you don't know how to spell it, it's also going to be in the show notes. If you would like to get regular news directly delivered to your inbox, I invite you to sign up to my monthly newsletter. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds. I hope that you will join me again next time. And until then, be well, be safe, and take care.